Hey, have you guys ever experienced any of those sort of life-changing, sort of earth-shattering, I don't know, cataclysmic, uh, just monumentous events in your life? Like one minute life is completely ordinary, it's just mundane, you're kind of going through the normal everyday routine and then suddenly something breaks forth and life is forever changed. I mean, just one of these boom moments of your life that you cannot go back to. It's, it's the stuff of fantasy. It's the stuff that dreams are made of, right? The movies portray it like clouds parting, you know, and then the single ray of light kind of falling down in a halo-like glow around one who once went completely unnoticed but now cannot be ignored. You know, it's usually the stuff of, of you know, those romantic comedies, but, but nevertheless, you know... Um, it's still very true. The once, what was once average, what was once just kind of normal and mundane and routine and just invisible is now suddenly having this power to make your very earth shake. Your life is interrupted and it's never the same. That's what Mark is describing for us today in Mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 13. God has sent His messenger John to prepare of the, the way for the one who would interrupt life as we know it. This long-awaited coming one enters the picture in a way that no one would expect. No one would have a clue. It's the invisible now made known. The unknown now revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who was more than ordinary. The extraordinary is now to reveal to be the truly extraordinary. And life will never be the same. This is cataclysmic. He who, who's this no-name man from this no-name, nowheresville kind of place, just enters the scene and in receiving baptism and obedience was declared to be the Son of God. He was common, a common man who relied upon the Spirit to resist earthly temptation. But in the process, he gained cosmic victory over Satan himself. This is huge. This is monumental. Here we see the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ collide in a cataclysmic way. Life has been interrupted, and it will never, ever be the same. So let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be impacted by your word, that our lives would be interrupted by the truth that is proclaimed here. This earth shattering, this monumental sky parting moment in the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry. May we see it for what it is where the divinity and, and the humanity of Jesus meet in this amazingly powerful way so that the skies themselves are torn open. God, I pray that, that the, the heavens, the skies of our lives might be ripped apart today so that we might see Him, so we might hear Your declaration of who He is, Your beloved Son with whom You are well pleased. God, I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So that's page 836 
in the Bibles there in the chairs. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This sky-parting inauguration of Jesus' ministry begins with an ordinary man going out into the wilderness to receive a baptism of repentance by John. You know, last week, uh, Mark gave us a little lesson in biblical theology. We looked at, he, he quoted three Old Testament passages, basically showing us that God is faithfully fulfilling his promises by sending his messenger, John, to prepare the way of the Lord. And we saw that John did this in two ways. He did it first by proclaiming the Lord's coming. He told us that that the one who was to come is mighty, that he's worthy, and that he will give the Holy Spirit. He will baptize those in the Holy Spirit, those who follow him. Right? And he also proclaimed, prepared the way of the Lord by baptizing. Right? He's calling everyone everywhere to repent of their sins, to acknowledge by faith this coming one, and to respond by making a public declaration, a public profession of their repentance and faith by responding in baptism. He's calling everyone everywhere to repent, to believe, and to respond in baptism. And John proclaimed this coming one by saying, After me, comes he who is mightier than I, whose strap, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is preparing the way of the Lord by proclaiming that a sandal-wearing man is mighty, he's worthy, and he gives the Holy Spirit. In other words, this man is God. That's what we talked about last week. Enter Jesus. Mark moves from focusing on this coming one, this one that is powerful, that is praiseworthy, that commands the very Holy Spirit to, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus comes from a no good, nowhere, no nothing town and shows up in the wilderness to receive a baptism of repentance by John. Talk about ordinary. I mean, what what could be more mundane than this? What could be more unexpected? You're waiting on this coming great one, this mighty one, this worthy one, this Holy Spirit giving one. And then on the scene, and there's Jesus. It's the exact opposite of what you expect. I mean, how could someone from Nazareth of Galilee be mighty? How could a carpenter be worthy? How could someone who actually shows up out in the wilderness to be baptized, a baptism of repentance nonetheless, turn around and baptize others in the Holy Spirit? It makes no sense. I mean, what could be more anticlimactic than this? 
But nevertheless, Mark is tying them together. He wants us to put two and two together. He wants to show us that this, this paradox, this, this irony of ironies, is true. I, th- I think that Mark just loves irony. In fact, it's thick throughout his gospel. And here, it's no exception. The mighty, worthy, Holy Spirit commanding Lord comes from the middle of nowhere, not in power, but to receive baptism by John and the Jordan. You're probably asking yourself like I was when I read this. Like, why? Why is Jesus going out the wilderness to receive baptism? I mean, it makes no sense. I mean, Mark has been showing us for the last two weeks that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the very Son of God. And if you know anything about Jesus' life, you know that he knew no sin. I mean, the New Testament is clear on this, that Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. He did not sin, therefore he had no need to repent. So why is he out there receiving this baptism of repentance? It just it doesn't make sense to me. In fact, John himself, in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 3, attests to this very thing. If you've read that account, you know that Jesus goes out there to John, and John says, you should be baptizing me, not the other way around. But Jesus answers him by saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' desire is to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus shows up to be baptized, a baptism of repentance, in order to fulfill all righteousness? Well, I think there's a few reasons. One, I think, first of all, he's trying to confirm John's ministry. He's showing his affirmation, his agreement with John's ministry. But there's much more than that. I think that that's kind of tertiary. One of the biggest reasons, I think, is because Jesus is displaying his perfect obedience to the Father in all ways proving himself to be righteous by submitting to the call of baptism. Jesus maintains his perfect righteousness by obediently submitting to the way that the Lord God has prepared for the coming one. He's obeying everything that God said. And God said, listen, this is the structure for man. Repent, believe, be baptized. And so Jesus does it in complete obedience. Even though he has no sin that he needs to repent of. He does it anyway. But I think that Jesus also does it in order to identify with and attest to his own humanity. Jesus is identifying himself with the sinful people that he came to save. He's showing us in the process that, I mean, this is an amazing thing, right? I mean, Jesus comes there. He's identifying himself with the sinful people that he came to save, and the very act that he's doing it by becomes a symbol of the sacrifice that he gave in order to save them. I mean, we understand baptism itself to be a symbol of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And for us to receive baptism is for us to proclaim that we have repented of our sin and we have trusted in Him as the Lord and Savior. This is a, it's a fulfillment. This is amazing that Jesus takes this on in Himself. But it also highlights His own humanity. Jesus wants to show us that He's just like us. 
He's just like us in every way. He sets an example for us in obedience that we are to follow. Jesus' baptism highlights his humanity, that that he's identical to us. He lived an ordinary life. He identifies himself with the common man, not with the powerful, not with the mighty, not with the, the worthy of the world, but instead with the ordinary. Those who know that they are sinful in the eyes of God. And he's calling us to the same obedience. He submitted himself by faith to God's call just as we are. Jesus is is just like you and me. He's just like you and me. You know, last week we talked about baptism, what it is, and why it's important, why every believer should go through it. For Christians, baptism is a public profession of our identity with Christ. Here we we repent of our sins and we have faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior and we want to publicly declare to the world, to our brothers and sisters, to, to those around us that Jesus is indeed our Lord, that He is our King. We are taking on His name and leaving our own. That we identify ourselves with Him and we commit ourselves to a local manifestation of His body. That is the church. And here's the thing. If Jesus, who knew no sin, wasn't above submitting to the ordinance of baptism, if you profess faith in Christ, then neither are you. Neither are you. I mean, if if Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, and John, as we've just seen, is calling all people to repent of their sin, to believe in Christ, and to respond in baptism, then it is essential for the obedience of every believer. Now, so if you have professed faith in Christ and have not yet been baptized, you need to know that, that though baptism is not necessary for salvation... It is necessary for obedience. And to continue in disobedience is sin. Christ has set an example for you to walk in. So if you haven't been baptized, you need to come and talk to me or talk to Jim or talk to Caleb. We actually, we're having a baptism service next week. And if you talk to us now, there might be a possibility that you can participate in that. If you, I mean, there are many who aren't here. If you know that they haven't been baptized, go and talk to them about it. This is an important deal. Our obedience is important to God. It's not necessary. Like it, our, our salvation is not bound upon it, but the work of Christ in our lives will result in obedience. But for Jesus and for us, baptism is an act of faithful obedience, and we need to walk in it. But uh, what's even more amazing than Jesus' perfect obedience in baptism is God's response to it. You see, Jesus' baptism serves as a divine anointing, as an inauguration of his ministry. Pick up in verse 10. It says, And when he came up out of the water, there's no sprinkling there, when he came up out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus comes up out of his baptism by immersion. 
It's important we talked about that last week. And immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit hovering down on him like a dove. All right. This is no cloud parting, single ray of light sort of trickling down, softly glistening the water from his freshly baptized head. All right. This is far more than that. This is a schism. That's the very word, the Greek word, schism. It says that the heavens were being torn open. They were being ripped apart. They were being split in two. God was a fact, as, in, as it says in Isaiah 64, 1, rending the heavens and coming down. All right? That's a fulfillment that's happening here. God is, Mark is not simply describing that God is opening a way of access to him. It says far more than that. It says that in this ripping, in this tearing, in this splitting, God is coming down to us. That's what's happening here. This is cataclysmic. God is revealing to us that a new age has dawned and the world would never be the same. I mean, think about it. What is ripped, what is torn, is never the same. You can sew it back together, but it's never like it was. The very fabric of the earth is changed. This new age has come. The long-awaited Messiah is here. It's interesting that when Joshua and the Israelites came to the Jordan, God parted the waters. He did the same thing for Elijah and for Elisha. But when Jesus came to the waters of the Jordan, God tore open the heavens themselves. Something far greater is here. He is indeed rending the heavens and coming down. Not only were the heavens torn, but it says that the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Okay? And though Luke makes explicit that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in a bodily form like a dove, you know, it had the sort of the, the visible manifestation of a dove. The point is not that a bird flew down and landed on Jesus' shoulder, okay? That's not the the means of the description. What he's trying to, to illustrate for us is the manner in which the dove descended. It's not the fact that it's a dove as much as it's how it lands. It says that it was hovering. Can you recall a time where the Spirit was hovering? Genesis 1, creation. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here something far more significant is happening. Not in terms of creation, but in terms of recreation. This is an inauguration of the Spirit's new work in the hearts of believers to recreate, to regenerate, to cause to be born again to to new life in the name of Jesus. This is an amazing thing that's happening here. This signifies new creation. This cataclysmic event is pointing us to a new beginning in Jesus. You know, something that comes up in this conversation about the Spirit and what all that means for the life of Jesus. Some people think that, or they question, well, does this, is this where Jesus became the Son of God? Sort of an adoptionistic perspective, that Jesus was somehow adopted as the Son of God. Look, he didn't have the Spirit, now he does. Well, that's not what it means. This is not when he became the first to be spiritually recreated. 
It's not as though the Spirit came down into him here as if he were adopted and not divine. I mean, we've already argued for the past two weeks in, in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, that very contrary to this, Mark has argued against this. What we see here is the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism as an anointing. This is an inauguration of the beginning of Jesus' Spirit-filled ministry. It's happening. I mean, and this is attested from the voice of heaven itself. God himself speaks from above saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Here God has ripped open the skies to bless Jesus and to proclaim from heaven that this is my beloved son. God's doing that. He says that Jesus is beloved. That God himself is well pleased with him. And here Jesus has just entered the picture for us. This is the first time we take a look at the man Jesus, but already this is established. This shows us of a pre-established relationship. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's not saying, Jesus, you've been a good boy, so I'm going to choose to love you and to be pleased with you. That's not what he says at all. No, God says, you are my beloved. You are my son, whom I have loved. With you, I am well pleased. What we see here is not an adoption, but a public declaration of a pre-existing relationship. Jesus is God's beloved son. God himself, in dramatic, earth-shaking fashion, is confirming this, that Jesus has been is and will be his son, his beloved son. That doesn't change because we see an apparition of the Holy Spirit descending upon him. This is an attestation of what always was. This language, it recalls Psalm 2, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, where God announces his son as king over the nations. The ends of the earth shall be his possession. But it also recalls Isaiah 42.1. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This text speaks of God's suffering servant who would sacrifice himself in order to bring justice and reconciliation between man and God, which Jesus fulfills himself on the cross. God is again fulfilling his Old Testament promises through Jesus. He is declaring that this is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased, who will be king over the nations, who is also the servant who will suffer and die as a substitute for sin in order to bring many back to God. What's amazing is we also see the Trinity in action here. This is a Trinitarian passage, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, all at work, right here. We see God blessing and declaring His Son Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers Him to fulfill His ministry. And Jesus, the Son, defeats sin, death, and Satan Himself as He makes His way to the cross to give His life as a ransom for many. 
Here, the triune God is at work in confirmation and in ministry to fulfill His very purposes. In verses 12 and 13, we're moving on, Jesus obediently begins His divinely anointed ministry by facing earthly temptation. It says, The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness, and He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I would think that after such a dramatic announcement, I mean, the very skies ripped apart, that this is not what would happen. I would think, man, if I was John, I was sitting there, I'd be like, man, it's on. It is game time. I can't wait to see this. I mean, man, it is unleashed. Things are going to go crazy. I can't wait to see this. But what happens? The Spirit thrusts him out into the wilderness. Now, this is not a gentle thing. Like, the Spirit's like, come on, Jesus, let's go over here. Come on. No, it's like the language is thrusting, is driving, is casting into the wilderness. <laughs> and he, he, he fasts, we know from, from the other accounts, that he fasts for 40 days. It was without food, without water, for 40 days he's out there. And he's tempted by Satan, the adversary, this, this fallen angel who has rejected God, whose desires to get everybody to turn away from God, to try to thwart as best he can God's plan, which can't work. And Jesus is out there with all these wild animals that could eat him. That's why he says it, because, I mean, this is dangerous stuff, right? This is not what you would expect to happen next. The, a divinely, a divine anointing. This is my son. You would think that this would come in power, with grandeur, with might, with glory, with palm branches laid down as people sing Hosanna. But instead he's led into the wilderness. Things are not as they seem. Jesus, fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit, was driven out, was led into the wilderness a place of testing and judgment, a place where faith is proven to either be true or false. God is testing His own Son to see if He would stay faithful in the face of danger, in the face of trial, in the face of suffering, and in temptation. And here again, we see the humanity of Jesus put in view again. It's put right there in front of us. For Jesus to live a perfectly obedient life, he must do it by living by faith and by walking in the grace of God given to him by the Holy Spirit. His reliance upon the Holy Spirit led him to this place of testing. His dependence upon the Holy Spirit led him to fast for 40 days. His Spirit-empowered faith helped him not to waver in the face of temptation and danger. In all these things, Jesus evidenced faith. The same sort of Spirit-dependent faith that you and I are called to. It's so different. Jesus was really tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is able to sympathize with our weakness because in his humanity, he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. You know, often we think that this couldn't be the case. I mean, we, we think Jesus is the Son of God. 
he couldn't face temptations like I face. He couldn't experience the same weight of trial and affliction and lust and desire that I face because he's the Son of God. Well, he's also fully man. And in fact, he, he faced every temptation out here. We know from, from Matthew's account, from Luke's account, that this is the case. Jesus dealt with fear and anxiety. He went without food. He was running the risk of being eaten alive. He dealt with physical temptation of hunger, thirst, suffering, and pain. Jesus' pride was tested. His allegiance to God was tested. His desire for comfort and for power was tested. In every way, in full dependence upon the Holy Spirit, Jesus stood faithful in trusting His soul to God. In fact, Jesus bore more temptation than you or I. He bore more. Because He didn't succumb to the temptation. He bore the full weight of it. See, if you face temptation and you give in, there's more temptation that you haven't faced. The only way to truly face it is to come out on the other side. And Jesus was barraged for 40 days with every temptation known to man to the fullest weight by Satan himself. And he did not give in. He was dependent upon the Holy Spirit And by faith, he succeeded. Only Jesus has done that. And he did it just as we are. By faith. And in facing this earthly temptation in dependence on the Holy Spirit, something amazing happened. Jesus gained cosmic victory over Satan. Jesus gained cosmic victory over Satan. You know, I just mentioned that the wilderness was a place throughout the Old Testament of temptation, of testing, of trial, of judgment. When Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden and they sinned against God, their punishment was that they were exiled into the wilderness, right? When God freed the Israelites from their captivity to Um, to Egypt and were led through the Exodus. They were led in the wilderness. They were tested there. They failed. And as a result, God's judgment was that they must wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Fast forward again. When God had established the kingdom of Israel and they continued to reject God, God prophesied and fulfilled His judgment against them by sending them out of the promised land into exile in the wilderness. And now Jesus enters that same place of testing, that same place of judgment, and does what Adam and what all of Israel could not. He restores what Adam has broken. He fulfilled what Israel could not. He remained faithful in the face of temptation by Satan himself. Now, if you remember from Genesis 3, when Adam failed in his temptation by Satan, the whole world was subjected to the fall. Sin and death entered the world. People were born with a corrupt, sinful nature, leading them to reject God. Suffering and hardship 
plagued every activity of life. Our relationships, our work, childbearing, everything was affected by the fall. It was now hard. It was now difficult. The whole world itself was subject to decay. Thorns entered the world. Sickness, disease entered the world. People started killing one another. I mean, it's just chaos entered the world as a result of Adam's fall into sin. It led to catastrophe of cosmic proportions. Cosmic proportions. This is more than just one man making a simple sin against God. It had cosmic consequences. But Jesus, bearing the full weight of Satan's temptation, did not fail. And as a result, he gained cosmic victory over Satan. I mean, from here on out, Satan is just a byword in the Gospel of Mark. He is just a byword. In fact, he's barely even mentioned here. It's it's ironic that, that Mark himself pays more attention to Jesus cleaning up the leftovers, the scraps, the hostages who were left imprisoned by holy, by, by evil spirits than he does focusing on Satan himself. You notice that? He spends one verse on Satan. And that's it. Amen. This is because Mark never wants us to take our eyes off Jesus. Not for a moment. He, he doesn't want us to put our eyes on this defeated, hell-bound enemy. He wants to keep our eyes focused solely on the one through whom we gain victory. And though Satan is still active in this world and he's trying to thwart God's plan, he cannot. He cannot. God has sovereignly bound him through Christ and he is never freed from his leash. Not for a moment. He cannot do anything besides what God sovereignly allows. And we can take trust in that. We are not overcome. Satan is in no way equal to Christ or God. In no fashion. He is defeated. It's just like D-Day, right? I mean, World War II was won at D-Day. And though the war continued for a while, the victory happened when we took Normandy. That was it. And that's what Mark is laying out for us. It was a bit like being at the U of I game, you know, last week, you know. Um, if you were there, I think that Mark doesn't, I mean, Mark just kind of basically, he presents it like, yeah, Jesus went out there, yeah, he, he trumped Satan, what's there to say, you know? And that's the way the, the fourth quarter was of the U of I game against Indiana. I mean, if you were there in the stadium, I mean, it was just dead. I mean, people were checking their cell phones. They were having conversations. Nobody was engaged in the fight, even though it was still occurring. It was over. It was done. And I think that that's why Mark pays so little attention to it here. It was here that Jesus showed Satan that he could not be messed with. It was right here. We often think about Jesus in the garden, right before he died, right? And, and, and the, the agony that he was facing. Jesus was facing agony, not because he was tempted by Satan to run and hide, but because he knew that he would be forsaken by the Father. That was his plight. That was his dilemma. Not that Satan was kind of wooing him away. 
No, Satan was defeated here. Satan gave everything he possibly could. He brought out all armies. He brought everything that he could muster and try to lay it on him, and it didn't work. Here's where he gained the decisive victory over the enemy. This was the beginning of God's redemptive victory through Jesus, which would be completed when Jesus ascended heaven and seated at God's right hand, and for us will be seen when he returns in power. But I don't want you to miss that this temptation has cosmic significance. Cosmic significance, just as Adam's did. In the baptism and temptation of Jesus, we see the humanity and divinity of Jesus meet with cataclysmic consequences. We see Jesus' faithful obedience as he submits to God's will and stands by faith against the temptations of Satan. We also see the heavens torn apart as God's anointed son, whose first act of ministry was to gain cosmic victory over Satan. But before we end, I want us to drop our eyes down to verse 15 to read Jesus' first message, his first sermon. These are Jesus' words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Jesus' baptism, as God anoints him in earth-shaking magnitude, he shows that the time is indeed fulfilled. In Jesus' victory over Satan and Satan's kingdom, he reveals that the kingdom of God is truly at hand. As Jesus is obedient to receive a baptism of repentance and trusts God in the face of all Satan's temptations, we see that, that Jesus does not call us to anything that he himself has not done. He's like us in every way, yet without sin, including a willingness for repentance and faith. So he's calling each one of us to be humble, to be submissive, to be reverent, to be obedient in faith in his heavenly Father, just as he was. And he's calling each of us to repent of our sins and believe in his sacrifice so that we too may inherit the kingdom of God. This is, if this is not a life-changing event, then I don't know what is. The question is really, will it change yours? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this announcement, this inauguration, this entrance of Jesus in in extraordinary and extraordinary ways. He's come in ways that we completely didn't expect, proving himself to be just like us in his humanity, but yet with thunderous, cataclysmic consequences that you ripped the very heavens open to declare him to be your son. And in his Faithful obedience to your spirit gains cosmic victory over Satan. God, I pray that seeing these things together would cause us to 
repent of our sin and to believe just as He calls us to. That our desire would be to obediently follow the One who You have revealed to be the answer to our life's questions. God, give us a heart and a desire for Jesus. May, may we not just pass over these words as a, as a story, but may they impact our very souls. He is fully man. He is fully God. He is your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen.